0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion.
1: You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. We're back. And this show and the one that follows next week, I think they're the most incredible that I've ever recorded. I mean, I just cannot wait to share these with you. Okay, how can a jewellery brand make post-conflict land safe for the people who live there? Is that even possible? It sounds pretty crazy to be talking about war and bombs, even in the same sentence as fashion and jewellery. But that's exactly what Article 22, a New York-based jewellery brand and social enterprise that's handmade in Laos, seeks to do. They upcycle shrapnel and scrap metal from the Vietnam War into their jewellery. And they called their first collection Peace Bomb. The name Article 22 comes from the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's that bit that says economic, social and cultural rights are indispensable for human dignity. Now, for every jewellery piece they make, Article 22 donates to MAG, the Mines Advisory Group. It's an NGO that's on the ground clearing undetonated bombs so that families can finally live and farm in peace. Last year, Article 22's founders, Elizabeth Suda and Camille Otfor, invited me to Laos to see for myself how it all works. Before we get into it, I've got two quotes to play you. This one is what Elizabeth said when I asked them how they work with their artisan partners in Laos. And I think it's good to hear it up front. It's
2: truly a a partnership. We couldn't do what we do without their commitment and dedication and their innovation. And it would be much harder for them to reach the global market without Article 22 as a partner. And the fact is, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. There is shared value, there is shared impact, there's respect that goes both ways. And ultimately, it is a business opportunity to create solutions that are scalable and self-sustaining. And it is to everyone's advantage to try to solve a problem through... Business in this case, the problem is working with people who don't have access to a larger market, bringing them design innovations, connection, and storytelling, and then taking that extra step through each piece that we sell to donate to Mind's Advisory Group to clear unexploded bombs from the land, and they are still farmers and they are mothers and fathers and they're able to be both of those things as well as artisans because they're working within their own gardens and their own communities. And the pieces that they make are actually helping to clear their very own land and the land of their neighbors in the province. And that's powerful. They're agents of change. They are not recipients of charity. They are part of a self-sustaining, economically viable business model. And Design has always been intended in one way or another to solve problems. Yes, we think of it as often about decoration and ornament. And guess what? It can be both things. It can be beautiful and it can be meaningful and it can actually help solve some technical problems.
1: I also want to play this.
3: It shook me up on the deepest possible level because it meant everything I had been taught and everything I believed about America wasn't true.
1: That's the words of the late Fred Brantfman, who died in 2014. Fred was a New Yorker. He went to Laos in 1967 as an aid worker. He stuck around and became a journalist, and by talking to local people, he found out about what's now known as the Secret War. Now, the United States did not publicly acknowledge combat operations in Laos. And yet they dropped more than 2 million tonnes of bombs on the country during the height of the Vietnam War. That is more than they dropped on Germany and Japan in World War II. In 1971, Brantman testified to Congress about the bombing campaign. But the then-American ambassador to Laos, this guy's name was William H. Sullivan, tried to make it go away, and it took another 45 years for an official acknowledgement. What follows is the reportage that we made in Laos. You'll hear from Elizabeth and Camille and the villagers who make the jewellery. You'll hear some startling stuff from MAG, the Mines Advisory Council, and the audio from a MAG field trip where I had the just indescribably strange experience of detonating a bomb on farmland in Senkwang province. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. I found out afterwards it was also very rare They don't just let any old journalist detonate bombs out there. But thanks to the long relationship that Article 22 has working with MAG, it was felt that this was a real opportunity for me to tell you guys about the ongoing situation there. It's really, I mean, wait till you hear it. It's crazy. Anyway, (laughs) this is actually an episode in two parts because next week... We're going to hear from the anti-war photographer, Giles Dooley, who is quite simply the most fascinating, inspiring person I've ever, ever interviewed. And that is a fact. I'm not exaggerating. Giles was meant to join us on this trip, but at the last minute he had to pull out because he got sick. And over the coming months, we kept trying to meet and kept being thwarted and finally managed to do it in London. You will not want to miss next week's show, let me tell you. But now, come with me an Article 22 to Laos. Elizabeth, Camille, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Claire. Camille, do you want to start by just telling
4: us where we are? Sure. Uh, we are here in a very special place called Pansavan, the province capital of Tsienkwan, one of the most heavily bombed regions in Laos during the Secret War. Pennsylvania is famous for its rice noodle that you enjoy. Um, it's plain of jars, sites, uh, which has just been classified as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And the village of Pernapia, which is also called the Spoon Village, where Article 22 works.
1: We're kind of up high, right? We're, I mean, it's much cooler than it was in Vientiane.
4: We are a little higher, yes. So it's a little cooler at night. And um,
1: remote, like we went down these roads that are literally...
4: Totally, hills, remote. potholes. Um, yeah. Back in 2013, when I first um, went in Pennsylvania, actually, there was uh, no roads that was going to the village, so it was just uh, dirt roads. And Pennsylvania itself had this like really crazy atmosphere of like abandoned like Western streets with. Like um, what? 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 Abandoned, like very empty streets where... Oh, abandoned. I
1: love the French. I'm sorry. We've had so many (laughs) French podcast guests that I should be attuned to this. (laughs) Abandoned. Okay, Elizabeth, it all started with spoons.
2: Indeed. The power of a spoon. Where to begin?
1: Well, I know where you want to begin. But I want to take you back to your early days of working. You're working at Coach, the accessories brand, in New York. And you're yearning for more purpose, right? What happened? That's right. I just saw
2: how much money people spent on fashion. And then I thought, what if fashion could both look good and do good too? Everyone was starting to hear the stories of rivers running red in China and fashion kind of being a problem in terms of the way it was produced. And then of course, the human rights issues as well.
1: I know you applied for a Fulbright scholarship and wanted to do some work in India, but you didn't get it.
2: Yeah, that was my best failure, I always say, because um, it led me to Laos. It was an application to basically study the science and possibilities behind organic cotton in India, and at the same time, look at natural dyeing and handloom weaving. It was a bit of a broad inquiry, and I didn't get it, and it was fine. I knew that when I handed that in, it was actually just the beginning for me. I had to take a leap. It was the right time. I didn't have anything tying me back really in the U.S. And I also had a sense of wanderlust and I wanted to have an adventure. But it was wanderlust with a purpose because I knew wherever I was going to go with my six months of self-funded treasury, I wanted to really understand where certain things we buy are made. And I decided in the end that I wanted to focus on on the handcraft economy because I was really interested in the way, you know, artisans are actually often culture bearers in one way or another.
1: Why allow so? Do you just stick a pin in a map or what?
2: <laughs> you
1: want the full story? No, I want, I want a quick one. <laughs> I want a quick
2: one. No, it was, it was really that um, I just started Googling natural dyes handloom weaving and an opportunity on a website called idealist.org came up and, you know, it described more or less what I'd like to do. And although that wasn't the right fit in the end, in particular, um, it brought me to Laos. I bought my ticket and I started knocking on doors the day I arrived. And I met a woman who had founded a textile business back in the 90s and started exporting to Europe.
1: Okay, fast forward, you've started your own social enterprise. You're working with the artisans in a Lao village called Napier. And that's where the first family to return after the war started to salvage all this scrap metal and begin melting it down to make spoons. And that's actually why Napier is also known as the Spoon Village. But back in New York, your friend Camille is fed up with banking and she's joined you to work on business development. By 2017, you've got Emma Watson wearing Article 22, which sounds very glamorous. But let's remember the context is far from that. I'd love you to explain a bit more about the Secret War.
2: During the Secret War, which was essentially... Part of the Vietnam War, the US dropped 250 million bombs on Laos. 30% failed to detonate. That's 80 million unexploded bombs in the land today. The US dropped bombs 24 hours a day, every eight minutes, for nine years. That is relentless. That is impossible to imagine when you sit here in this peaceful place. And yet it happened.
1: Why was it a secret? I mean, that phrase, the secret war is very evocative, but why didn't people know?
2: It was agreed that Laos would be a neutral territory. The US was supporting the Royal Lao government and the North Vietnamese were supporting the Lao Communist Party. And the United States was essentially trying to contain the spread of communism. And as a result of that, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was completely trashed. And the province we're in today, Siang Kuang, was one of the headquarters of the pathet communist Lao at the time. So it is also one of the most heavily bombed provinces. Civilians are the ones that paid the price then and continue to pay the price now. In 2016, President Obama came to Laos. And it was the first time an American president actually not only came to Laos, but also acknowledged what happened.
4: Yeah, and and the legacy of war is still very present today where um, people are farming and the, the lands are totally contaminated. It's really, you know, to risk cultivating UXO-contaminated land or let your family starve, um, you know, there is no choice. Uh, Families are trying to meet their basic survival needs. They grow crops, they gather woods, you know, they collect water and they still face unacceptable risks on a daily basis. I think they're really um, mostly afraid for children that, you know... um, are more innocent and do not realise yet about the story and the history behind these. And
1: I watched this film, actually, Elizabeth, that you made. It was back in 2010. It's a short film which tells the story of Article 22. But there was a line in it that has stuck with me. It's from a writer called Fred Branfman, mentioned before. He says in your film and I wrote it down, here's the quote, learning this shook me up on the deepest possible level because it meant that everything I had been taught and everything I believed about America wasn't true. Did you feel like that?
2: It's a powerful statement, and it's I did feel that way when I came here. Not everything, but Fred's statement really resonates because you realise that history is often written by the victors. And... I saw this village taking this negative material and making it into something useful for the future, building small businesses, feeding their local community with soup spoons, and I thought that is a story that needs to be told. Part of our mission at Article 22 is to raise the voices of the people who are living in the aftermath and collaborate with other organizations, whether it's promoting history, healing, and hope, an organization called Legacies of War, based in Washington, D.C., that has been instrumental in lobbying Congress to support clearance activities in Laos to Mines Advisory Group that's actually clearing the unexploded ordnance on a daily basis here in Laos, in addition to the other countries where they work across the world. Yeah, and I think that our story in the case of Article 22 is
4: as important as the products that we create.
1: Yesterday we were in Napier village and we met with the family of Boon Chan. Like scores of families in this region, he had to go when the bomb started. After the war, he came back.
2: When he arrived back to his village, he discovered that the land was ravaged by war. Bombs both exploded and unexploded were everywhere. There was a plane that had gone down and he found a way to do something with that metal.
1: So basically you come back, you got nothing. I mean, we were speaking with people yesterday who were saying they didn't even have pans to cook in. Yeah. they had nothing so they've had to go to either Vientiane or perhaps to Vietnam anywhere that would have them because living here would have been a death sentence Yeah. Their village. the urge was... to come back is there that's your home you want to come back right
2: exactly their village was decimated but that was really the true place of their roots and it was only one thing to be done rebuild people there work with the materials that they have and find incredibly innovative usages for them and in this case, they could take this negative material that shouldn't have been there in the first place and they could develop it into something that was useful.
1: When you came here, they were still making spoons and indeed they continued to do so. But you saw an opportunity to make something else from this aluminium.
2: I thought if they could make spoons, they could make bracelets. And I will try to sell them and one bracelet turned into 500, turned into thousands, and we now have a full collection of jewelry.
1: So what do they do? So, I mean, I saw them do it yesterday, but tell us what they do, Camille.
4: So they work um, out of their homes in the back of their garden where they have earth kilns, and they um, melt the metal and pour it into um, moulds made of ashes and earth. Um,
1: We saw them do it. Like, it's amazing, right? And I said, gosh, Um, that looks hard. And And it's technical, it's
4: hard and and it requires quite some strength. Um,
1: Because ramming the earth down with their fingertips into this wooden mould.
4: Yes, then they dry it and the beauty is, is really in the the whole process making of the jewellery really has uh, beautiful steps to it.
1: So you started off making these bangles, what else do you make?
4: The bangle remains still, you know, our must iconic piece just because its shape actually represents the virtual circle that we wanted to create and so... We uh, make today necklaces, earrings, rings, engagement rings. Also, Um, one of her core collection is Love is the Bomb, uh, which is, you know, really, really powerful statement. And the idea when we design is really that we are inspired by um, universal stories of transformation that everyone identifies to... You know, we've developed many collaborations, all inspired by the idea of transformation of negative into positive.
1: Now, I know you've been collaborating with the photographer Giles Dooley, and we'll be getting into that in next week's episode. The most important collaboration you have, though, is with the people that make these pieces. How do you manage this relationship?
2: It's really all about developing good communication. And that's all really possible because of our local country manager, Manny Vaughan.
1: Because you don't
2: speak Lao? Unfortunately, no. If I knew in my six months that I would end up coming back here every year for the rest of my life, I, would have, um, I should have made more of an effort to learn. But we are so lucky because Manny really understands how to take what we envision and communicate that to the artisans when we can't do it ourselves through pictures. And
1: We've been hanging out with her. I mean, she's yeah. amazing. Yeah. She's obviously a great language bridge, but also she's a Laotian woman who has worked in the NGO sector through women's health, for example, before she came to work with you. But I think it's really interesting to share a bit of how you do deepen those relationships. Camille, you said to me that when you first came here, you stayed for three months. Yes,
4: I think, you know, Manivan is a, acts very well as something that's very important in any company as like a culture broker. And when you work with like very remote people and also culturally distanced from your culture in the US and in other countries and she helped us really to build like relationship that was really based on like respect, authenticity and very strong communication with the artisans you know we work with 12 families in the village right now the first line lunch i had in the village was the basi ceremony which is a ceremony where um you know it's really about celebrating your integration and welcoming
1: um, you in a kind of formal way right
4: yes and they each each member around the table knots around your wrist a white uh, string that represents good luck and good wishes for uh, what's going on here and it's true that today when when we arrive in the village the first thing that the artisans wants to do is have lunch with us because they know that this is the moment where they're actually gonna be able to like hang out with yeah. us as uh, like um yeah. you know as you would host family and that's <laughs> beautiful that everyone actually the women's like each like cook something that they bring on the table their specialty and then they're really really happy and everyone's laughing and then laughs a very important part of the <laughs> discussion for sure and uh, you always have grandpa so um, that's in the back and then the children like watching TV in the back and the scene is kind of every time the same and then the cats going around the tables and,
1: But we're um, eating um, a condiment that was made from the skin of a buffalo very, very Potent. <laughs> what else did we have? We had local mushrooms. We were actually
4: lucky that it was just the buffalo uh, last time. We actually were eating termites, eggs. <laughs> what else was there? Um, I mean, the famous sticky rice, of course, that you used to with your like. Hands. Um, yes. Of course, the, the spoon and then. Um, but some actually,
1: yeah, we're eating and serving. We're eating with our fingers, but then we're serving the vegetables with these aluminium spoons, and it becomes this very If you want to think deeply about it if you take it out of the practical and the present of sharing a meal with someone if you want to think philosophically about it it's actually very powerful in terms of symbolism isn't it we're sharing this meal we're using this spoon that has been created out of something devastating but becomes something yeah
4: and also the fact that through her work we help clearing the lands that actually help them to cultivate more and and more
2: safely I think the thing is, as different as one can be, you also find there's so much commonality and the food, the fried eggs, the bamboo soup, the mushrooms, those were all served differently than the way we would eat them back at home, but it's also what is familiar. It's also familiar, you know, that act of sharing food and celebrating, whether it's, you know, a regular lunch or, or a holiday. It's what we do everywhere across the world to come together. And the spoon and the jewellery has now travelled the world. We sell in over 40 countries. And somehow it is this sort of uniting story.
1: Boon Cham was the first person here to turn the physical waste generated by war, scrap metal, into goods the local people could sell. The year was nineteen seventy five, and the product was spoons, made from melted down aluminium reclaimed from bomb casings and crashed jet plane parts. Today, as you've heard, the family and their neighbours use the very same process to make jewellery for Article twenty two. The metal from the war is still in abundance in these hills. And Boon Chan still lives in Napier village, and I got to talk to him. Manavan acts as translator. <inaudible>
0: <laughs> uh, he, the beginning
1: he started to make spoon that
5: he he saw the army Lao army who start to make and then he learned from them and then he said uh, actually the first time they start to make 12 spoons to put aluminum one time for 12 spoon but actually it's not work like that you have to make one by one he said he learned from
0: army <laughs>
5: He born at Ban
0: Everybody went to Vientiane. Very,
5: very difficult life here. He had to start everything. And what he found that he learned this from the army. So he looking for the metal and do. And this is what, how he started to have the income to the, his family.
0: He said uh,
5: it's about uh, sixty family coming back. Yeah and then he became the first of the village, head of the village here. And other family come to uh, learn from him to make
0: the spoon. So he's
5: very proud to see uh, his young generation to have a new life. And everybody now can have a more uh, design and they can do the new idea. It's not only the spoon. So he's very happy and proud. Her name is La Duong Jai. i aluminum you know uh, before uh, have this job, uh, life is more difficult. And uh, after this, they have this um, aluminum job coming, then life income is better. She said she's still, uh, until now, she's still worried. Where where the village she stay also where she working from the rice field because the they didn't clean on the land yet where the she stay right now, the whole family is not hundred percent yet to be sure from the bomb.
1: Does she know people who have been injured? who me and
5: how an So of course she you know because one of the injured pe- uh, the person is her son the first son at the time is 6 years old oh, no. and is in just from the uh, in the uh, in the school so he f- he play and he found the back of the of the other side of the school so he play and he he throw so and then and yang dai and mue phan an
6: uh,
5: his accident comes to the, the, his tummy so they have to operate yeah and uh, and the, the head And he, her cousin, the son of her brother, is dead immediately at that time. Mm. he said the what happened at that time because uh, Mac is not coming yet so uh, she married in 1968 and she got the first son at 1987 uh, so by that time and then he was start the um, school at six years old so the happened is near the temple in her village. That. and and after lunch, they, they go back to the school and then they saw this in their play so that at the time is not nowhere well for the kid and for them also is really not many people come to promote how dangerous of that. They need to kai no yeah
1: now life getting better. MAG or Mines advisory group is an NGO that finds and destroys landmines, cluster munitions and unexploded bombs in places affected by conflict. Since 1989, they've helped over 18 million people in 68 countries. Now, this is the 25th year that MAG has been working in Laos to help clear the bombs and to educate communities about their danger. And just to note, it's not landmines we're talking about in Laos, and that will be explained a little bit later on. So far, MAG has surveyed more than 385 square kilometres of land here and confirmed it as contaminated. And they've found and destroyed over 257,000 unexploded bombs. I always think it's kind of hard to visualise numbers like that. But when you hear something human, something smaller scale, you really get it. In 2008, MAG cleared the land in and around a primary school in Zengkwang Province, where we are. They found the head of a missile, three unexploded bombs, and a rocket in the playground, as well as over 400 bombs in the forest behind the school. I mean, just hideous, right? This is Manicia. She's a boss lady. She's Magsmo's senior national staff member in Laos. She manages more than 200 people, and lots of them are young women. They're all highly trained. And some of them go out into the field in the last stage of the clearance process, so after the technical survey has happened. They know exactly where the bombs are, and under controlled circumstances, MAG blows them up.
7: Hello, my name is Manisia
1: What do you do here at MAG? Could you describe your job for us?
7: So, my position is Provincial Operations Manager in Maxinghuang. You're the boss. Ah, uh, Kai kind of a boss. You're the woman boss. <laughs> yes. This is good.
1: <laughs> Thank you. But what does that mean?
7: So in my responsibility, so I respond for 17 teams. It's a bit different from technical survey. For technical survey, we just clear only uh, 50%, but AC, clearance, I mean, so we clear 100% of land. So So we can hand over that land to the owner. People in the village, that can use their land safe. When they work in the farm, they feel like Concern and scare about bombies, especially. I'm
1: going to interrupt for a moment just to let you hear from Mag's technical field manager, Pepper, about this. It really makes it chillingly clear what Manicia means when she says bombies. They're also called bomblets, but don't think that they're friendly. About the size of a tennis ball, they're released en masse from cluster bombs. When you talk about bombies, what do you mean?
3: Uh, bombies is uh, cluster munition. Uh, which comes from aircraft bombs, and they, they are not Lots all little the ones, yeah, little ones, as a say, the size of a uh, piton ball. And in one aircraft bomb, depend how big it is, that it can be 400 bombies, 700 bombies, 600 bombies, and they are made in purpose not 100% to explode. Why? There's roughly 80% is programmed to go off, and another 20% to stay there. When uh, enemy, if may I say it, enemy, when they're running away, changing their location, to be surprised and having another accident. That's
1: a design. It is. God. Yeah. You said to me before that kids play pitong.
3: Especially kids, because at uh, BLU size, it's the same size of uh, this metal ball. So it's very popular. Uh, pitong in here is very popular in Lao, especially in rural areas. Because after work, it's nothing to do, no other activities. You think it's a ball, it's a game? Yes, and they try to play exactly it's as a pitong. and against another ball. Oh, and my e- God. Exactly. Because it's other ball, they metal one. When they hit each other, it goes off. And has we... this happened? Or oh, did happen. Not once, but quite a lot.
1: Does everybody here know somebody who has had an accident or who has been affected?
7: We can say yes, because in Xinquang every year we still heard that people get killed or injured for UXO quite often.
1: It's terrible.
7: Yes, it's quite terrible. That's why Mac need to work in Sienkhuang, try to help people.
1: Now it's rainy season. It makes your life more difficult to do this work, yeah?
7: Yes, because now it's a uh, rainy season. Now we cannot work in party field. We just work like grassing land and forest. It's quite difficult because we need to cut vegetation first. And another challenging is maybe you will heard about kind of leeches. Leeches? Yes. Oh, in the maybe forest because it's wet. Beam insect, everything is quite difficult for this season
1: as well. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> so it's hard for everything yes. it's dangerous for the bombs when, but it's also wet and yeah. leeches you
7: you can imagine ladies team when leech on them they're going to, to cry ah, ah, every time when you visit them kind of uh, okay this is real hard job as well
1: what makes you do your job what makes you want to do this work
7: mm, this is Quite normal question, but it's difficult to answer. <laughs> first thing, just kind of, uh, when I first joined MAC, I'm a D-miner as well. So just, you teenager, you kind of, okay, this job quite challenging, and you can help people, kind of, uh, you can remove the bomb, just feel, make you happy. And since now, i am worked with MAC about 12 years, over 12 years, kind of, you work every day. Every year is quite long. You're so proud of your job and also make you happy when you can help people. It's especially in Xiangguang.
1: But it's also dangerous. I think you're very brave.
7: Yes, it's dangerous, 100% dangerous. But we did train before. Yeah. And we just follow our SOP. Don't jump out from SOP and you can be safe. What's SOP? Standard operation procedure. Do you have family? Yes. Do you have children? I have two kids. One son is almost nine years, and one daughter over five years.
1: I joined Minicia, Pepper and the MAG team out in the field. And it literally is a field. So it's like rolling green farmland and looks completely peaceful. Except for their safety briefings, the uniform technicians with their metal detectors, the lines of MAG vehicles, the presence of a medical officer, and the strict instruction not to wander outside the safety markers. Detonating this bomb was definitely one of the weirder things I've done in my job. And afterwards, everyone clapped and cheered, and it made me really uncomfortable. I was like, it's not fun. But they said, I should be happy, because this represents one more step towards making people safe. What's about to happen here?
3: Preparation for destroying the cluster ammunition. And uh, before anything else, we have to look after safety rules. So they got megaphones? Yeah, megaphones to warn local people and chase, because usually there are animals around. We just
1: saw a dog, I was like, I am not happy. But the dog is now gone, we're glad to say. The cows are safely a long way away.
3: I hope so. But still, they they move from that uh, worse item in different uh, direction, till they give us signal, everything is clear, we can't do any step forward. We just wait for for them. In this case, uh, then they test the cable before just to be sure to don't have any misfire huh? because yeah if a uh, cable is damaged something it uh, call it misfire it's not going to go off we test first cable after that the supervisor who is in charge right now you'll do uh be sure prepare everything when cable is ready put main charge donor charge actually and give order to us and after that we wait order from sentries uh, with everything clear, we go the last step, which is to blow it up.
1: Claire, this is crazy.
3: This is what they removed just today. All this scrap of metal for this team.
1: This is a bucket of bomb parts. Let me explain to you. Yeah. When I count, uh, yeah. three, two, one, fire. Lift uh, to prime the red button. Yes. And then I've got my finger on the green button.
6: Yes, and then there's red bomb inside. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and then when I say fire, then you press once. Close at once? Yes. Both. The green button and the red button? Yes, only once. Then it go off there.
1: Wow. God! Are we sure this is the right time? Hello.
6: Okay, yeah, so... Great. Okay. OK, This yep. seems hectic. Uh, sorry. OK. Yep.
1: Oh my God, I can't do it. So both buttons at once?
6: Yes. Let me call first button. Ah, uh, three, two,
1: one, file! <gasps> <laughs> <laughs>
6: Congratulations!
1: While more bombs have been cleared, no one is willing to say exactly when they think Laos will be bomb-free. In 2019, there were still people being injured and killed. Half an hour away lives another family Article 22 is working with. When we visited, Ladon and his wife and two daughters, the rain was bucketing down on their tin-roofed stilt house. And you can definitely hear the clatter of the rain, but you'll also hear the incredible story of Ladon's experience disturbing an unexploded bomb back in 2010. It injured his eyes and his hands very badly. His kids were just two and eleven months at the time. Again, it's Manivan translating.
6: No, the เสียใจ and so um your
1: eyes were injured
5: ตาเจ้าพิการทั้ง
6: almost
5: let's say whole body
1: you were working as a builder as well as farming is that right?
6: <coughs>
5: yes he is He have been working building he can work with the rice field like he can work everything anything um, He said that day he cleaned um, the garden and then he collect on the leaf the dry leaf from the garden and then he make the uh he try to roast like a bamboo stick from his rice field so he make the bamboo smoke the bamboo stick and the bomb would export from the ground sweet <laughs> Very difficult in his life, very hard life after that. He said he had to be strong with his children.
1: Was it MAG that helped you with the operation on your
6: eyes?
5: Yes, MAG helped.
1: And so you had to go somewhere, did you go to Nepal, is that
5: what they said? Nepal. Before he went to Nepal, uh, he went to Vientiane to check up and went to uh, Thailand two times. And and then suddenly they found a person who offered the eyes in Nepal. He said, uh can see, it's about four 30 to 40 percent like this to you. I said, can you see what your hair color? He said, oh, if near like this, he
1: can see. Yeah.
6: Yeah, he can see. That's good.
1: Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah.
5: He's still painful every day, but he can't, cannot take out his pain from his heart.
1: My last interview is with Pepper Alezi. He's one of Mag's supervisors and he's been clearing mines and unexploded bombs for the last two decades in war zones and places riven by conflict. It's personal for him. He started this work in his home of Kosovo. We recorded in a jeep with just one mic between us and again, I'm very lucky to get this access. We do mention funding, and if you want to read around it, after Obama's visit in 2016, the US committed $90 million over three years to help Laos clear unexploded ordnance. In Mag's case, they do receive some funding from the US State Department's Office of Weapons Removal and Abatement. It's part of a four-year project ending in December 2021. And DFID is the British Government's Department for International Development, and they also contribute, as does the Norwegian government and a bunch of other organisations and foundations and private donors. And next week, you'll learn more about the situation in other post-conflict countries. Where to begin? We've just come out of what I found an extraordinary experience, where I pressed the button to set off a device that was buried in the ground that your team had carefully set up right. for disposal. Yeah. Can you paint us a picture of what you're dealing with out here in this area of Laos?
3: Uh, mostly, we're dealing with cluster munition. There are also Yuk but the uh, percentage of contamination of uh, class ammunition is so, so, so high. They are still here because uh, it was bombed a lot. We know uh, Laos was one of the most bombed countries in the world, ever. They drop in every seven minutes, the average of nine years. And uh, every second day was the same fields, same uh, village. Because movement of uh, ex-armies, they moved from Giles and coming back again. And they went back again to to attack them.
1: I asked you before how soon you thought this whole problem could be solved. And you basically said you can't put a time frame on it. It's not something you can fix in X amount of weeks.
3: Uh, not only me, but no one. And uh, no one can tell you exactly like what year is going to be really bombs or you free land.
1: but you've got 15 teams right now working in this area
3: oh well, we have 15 teams in this area doing the clearance full clearance the systematic clearance also we have 20 other teams doing technical survey but again if we see nine years every seven minutes one bomb that again it's a lot and it needs time of course not only MAG, but anyone has more teams, more capacity in, on, on the ground and we can be more effective.
1: Just quickly, explain to us what MAG does.
3: MAG, 2019, is 25th anniversary in Laos and we did clear billions of sewer meters, millions of uh, bombies and your shows. We do non-technical survey, which uh, one we were very concentrated on uh, RE, Risk Education, to try to explain people, like especially with kids, in you know, schools, hospitals, and temples where they go for praying and so. And uh, did help to people to understand how dangerous are those items. In the past, as we know, I was not here forever, but there uh, was a lot of more accidents. A lot more.
1: There's
3: no landmines here, right? No, it's not. So far, for 25 years, there's no landmines. And it may say it's kind of more lucky for Lao people, because they are also could be more dangerous. More, they are more sensitive, as in this case in Cambodia or Vietnam. They have all cluster munitions, they have landmines, but not luckily, not in uh, in Dao. You
1: step on a landmine, you step off it, it explodes.
3: It explodes. Me and colleagues, we always were against movies, Hollywood movies, when they show how people step on the mine and after that somebody goes with knife or something else. That is really dangerous for ordinary people to watch these movies. And in this case, I would like to get opportunity uh, yourself and other people to share with ordinary people in uh, post-conflict countries to be careful because that is not going to happen. Even uh, less than a second as someone step on an anti-personal mind, especially it goes off. Forget movies, it's just movies to make people to watch them, mm-hmm. but has nothing to do with uh, reality.
1: But here there are bombs and parts of bombs that have been buried for Decades under the farmland that we're sitting here in a field looking at beautiful rolling green hills that yeah. look so benign, they look safe, they look gorgeous. But underneath there is this threat. I asked you before, how do people actually come to harm from these things because they're buried? And you said to me...
3: Because farmers, most of them, they are very poor. And that sometimes there are even poor, they know dangers can be everywhere. But because no other, other uh, sources... To support their families, and they are pushed to face off with uh, risk with I real. Uh, use the land or don't. Yes, and they had uh, accidents, a lot of people in the past, but they never stop because this uh, the land in here is the source of living. When they are digging, uh, like especially paddy fields, they have to work, and they in, in the past without risk education, they didn't know what's this. That was even more dangerous when they took items, go back home, and item went off as far as they reached home and was more victims than uh, one.
1: People have also collected these things because there's a market for them. I'm imagining that tourists come and, some tourists come and actually want to buy this stuff.
3: It's very common, uh, not kids, but parents use their kids to go and uh, hunt for bombs.
1: Like treasure hunt for not treasure. (laughs)
3: exactly and because some not responsible people buying from uh, again from poor people they are ready to do everything to get some money kind of souvenir and yeah we try again with our uh, risk education to go everywhere all around and explain ordinary people but again we can't be all the time everywhere risk education is really helpful need to be not only once, but to go often uh, because sometimes not everybody is around and depend how people share information. But to me, sometimes the best risk education is to people when we start work on the ground and do demolition because people hear something is there. And you can see your action uh, and people start to bring more information to us. Oh, I saw there yesterday, and my kids they saw something we don't know. And we react. Not only teams, but also uh, 24-7. Our uh, phone numbers are day-night, ready to accept information from ordinary people. And we do react as soon as possible.
1: Who funds this?
3: We have funds from uh, State Department, US. Till late, which is stopped uh, from uh, Norway, from Finland. Now we have from uh, DFID, uh, so far. But donors can change. In the past, we had uh, also from Germany, from different countries.
1: Can we finish up by me asking you why you ended up here? Because before you told me that you'd worked in Iraq, you've worked in what was I, Yugoslavia.
3: I, I first, my first experience on clearance was in my home country, because Kosovo uh, was in the war '99, and immediately after war '99, I started to open uh, channels and access for refugees to come back home and with a couple of my friends did work without real equipment but after that we got real support was amazing uh, many organizations came in my country and my decision after that I saw how helpful is this job and from 99 I'm in different countries like uh, DRC Rep- Democratic Republic of Congo Afghanistan Iraq, Syria Laos, the uh, latest one, and I don't know what's next.
1: Without wanting to get too political, these wars keep happening, these devices keep being dropped, and innocent people keep having to deal with it in post conflict zones. What has to happen to change this story? I just.
3: Well, it's a good question. I know answer is real, but people don't uh, respect it because they can stop it just, just like that. But governments the, the governments, it. politicians, they always spend a lot of money, have different meetings, different decisions, we have to stop. But as soon as meetings finish, they never change.
1: So how do you stay positive in the work that you do? Because you're changing it every day, I guess.
3: Uh, I stay positive because, uh, as I said, my hometown, I try to save my children, actually. At the time I had two, now I have three. And my neighbors. And anywhere where there's need to go post-conflict, doesn't matter how dangerous, I'll go there because I know how much it's going to be helpful for local, ordinary people.
1: To support Article 22, go to article22.com. To find out more about MAG, go to maginternational.org. And thank you for joining us on this incredible journey. I'll see you next week for Part 2 with Giles Dooley.
2: My parents feel
1: that
3: This is a waste of
2: time My time go away Because everything is just fine My friends don't feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you
1: because Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast you can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love
2: you, my 'Cause I love you because I love you.